One, two, ten. Welcome to the Claim the Throne Blodgecast, coming on you with insights into what it's really like to be in a do-it-yourself metal band in 2014. Who is it? And it's Cabba. It's Kiba. And Ish. And Ash. And you're listening to the Claim the Throne Blodgecast with Cabba and Ash from Claim the Throne. Thanks for tuning in again for another week. And we are pretty happy to have another interview for you coming up any minute. You saying anything? Who is it? This week, we were very lucky to have uh, the man Rodney Holder from musicbusinessfacts.com which is a awesome new podcast. Um, he is also the drummer from legendary Aussie metal band Alchemist. And on his podcast, he's interviewing all sorts of big name industry professionals um, to give all sorts of tips and advice uh, in regards to being a musician in today's day and age, um, their his- histories and backgrounds and things, but also focusing a lot on the business side of music and yeah, really giving some invaluable advice. So make sure you check out that podcast, musicbusinessfacts.com. And due to all the, the awesome high profile guests that he's had and also um, yeah, the, the big background in the Aussie metal scene, teaching and all sorts of things like that, he's got some really good advice and all sorts of things that any musician and metalhead will definitely find invaluable. So um, yeah, tune in, grab a pen and paper, take down plenty of notes and become a full on sick dick. Well, thanks for covering everything, Kappa. <laughs> I agree. Just covered everything. And, hey. Yeah, man. Just editing this one, getting a chance to listen to this a second time was pretty cool. So um, yeah, it might be one for multiple listens for certain members of bands who want to become management material or even just get themselves into the music industry. So check it out. Hello and a very warm welcome to another episode of the Claim the Throne Blodgecast. I'm Cabba. And I'm Ash and we're here with Rod from Music Business Facts podcast and the band Alchemist and all sorts of other ventures. So uh, yeah, welcome Rod. G'day guys, how's things? Really good man. Great to have you here and really appreciate it. Um, Yeah, I mean most recently you've obviously been starting the extremely insightful Music Business Facts like Ash mentioned um, the podcast so we're really honoured to be chatting to you today. We've learned a lot of things ourselves so far so i hope a lot of other people out there have been checking it out thus far and if not um yeah enjoy the interview today and make sure you tune into music business facts podcast myself and ash are giving the listeners a little idea of who you are but if you wouldn't mind just giving us a bit more detail about yourself perhaps your time in the metal scene as well and what you're up to these days with the music industry okay well uh yep um rodney hold is my name i'm 43 years old i started playing drums when i was 17 which at the time i thought was quite late because all the kids that have been around me that were doing it were all really good by the time they were sort of in year eight and uh, some mates of mine they just started playing and they're all really bad and they needed a drummer so I jumped on and said yep I'll do drums and uh, I really enjoyed it there was a band in in Canberra called Alchemist which was started by Adam who was the leader of the band and uh, they needed a drummer so I jumped into that and um, yeah 20 something years later we uh, we called it a day so I got a lot of experience out of that made a lot of uh, mistakes from uh, learning the hard way and not really having any resources to turn to and uh, you know I suppose back then too the industry was still pretty much evolving and it wasn't as sort of formalized as it is today but um, look I, I was the guy in the band that I really enjoyed doing the press kits and uh, you know sending out the the demos and you know I, I kind of was I mean Adam and I were both managing the band but particularly in the early days I really sort of got right into it and I, I liked putting on shows and yeah, you know, Canberra was a, a thriving metal scene back then. We're talking about ooh, 1989, 1990. And, um, you know, we were um, in awe of our heroes, the guys from Armored Angel, which sort of uh, we followed in their footsteps and we always wanted to be as cool as them. And, and what they did, we kind of followed and we learned from those guys. Joel from Armored Angel started Metal for the Brain, which was um, as a result of one of his good school friends being bashed in a, outside a nightclub in Canberra and receiving irreversible brain damage and um after a few years we alchemist played all those shows and uh when armored angel sort of uh, took a bit of a hiatus joel sort of said to me do you want to take over the show so we took over metal for the brain and sort of inherited that after a couple of years and and um particularly adam and i but all the guys in alchemist we took sort of a, a role in it and uh we were very ambitious to try and make it grow and you know we added extra stages and got more bands and really pushed it and it just got bigger and bigger so I guess parallel to me um, doing the band stuff and doing that really um, sort of with, you know, with all my efforts, there was also this whole sort of promoter side plus there was this whole sort of management side. So I was just gaining all these skills by uh, learning the hard way essentially and, and, you know, making a few mistakes. And I had a few people I could go and call on but no real sort of mentor or anything. And um, 
Uh, I suppose after a few years of doing that, I managed to get, you know, a, a bit of a reputation and a few skills. And then in Canberra in 1999, they opened up a TAFE and they were looking for a, um, a, someone to teach music business. And um, I was approached and I thought, oh, well, that's interesting because I never really thought of myself as a, a business person. It was all sort of coming from an artistic and creative perspective. And uh, I landed this really amazing job where I was teaching people just the basics of the music industry, sort of young people how to, you know, what is copyright all about and, uh, you know, what's a basic worksheet and contract and, you know, little marketing plans and how to put a tour together and all that stuff that I was doing together anyway in my, with my sort of passionate day-to-day workings, whether it be with Alchemist or Metal for the Brain or putting a tour together or liaising with um, record labels or publishing companies and blah, blah, blah. And um, as I started doing that, I realized there was so much that I needed to learn. And so I just really immersed myself in music business because it was, it just became a passionate of mine. And um, I really wanted to, uh, to help people not make the mistakes that I had made or an alchemist had made and, and metal for the brain had made and, and really just try and empower people by giving them information. And um, here we are in 2014 and I'm still doing it. I'm still got this great job. I'm living in Brisbane. I get to meet every year lots of young and inspired individuals who want to make a career in the music industry. And uh, I feel very lucky that I um, can uh, impart my wisdom and knowledge on these young people and, and hopefully play a, a positive impact in their life, if you like, and help them with their careers. And as a result of doing that, I started interviewing, um, you know, because I say to my students, don't think I know all the answers. This thing's changing every day and there's so much to learn and you'll never know it all. So I started interviewing um, industry professionals that I'd met through my connections of just, you know, doing it for the last 20 odd years. And then I started recording them and then I thought, well, this is a good little sort of podcast idea. So um, that led to Music Business Facts and uh, yeah, now I'm right into it. I'm really sort of having a, a push at it and I'm, I'm putting myself out there and uh, again, I'm just trying to interview as many sort of successful uh, experts and professionals and people that are in the industry and have got a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge to give to people. And I'm wrapping it all together and I called it Music Business Facts and uh, here we are. I've just relaunched my uh, my 10th episode with Paul Field, the manager of the Wiggles, which, man, you know, speaking to these people who are really super successful, I mean, the Wiggles have been in the uh, Business Review Weekly the last, I think, five or six years turning over, you know, tens of millions of dollars. So these guys are doing it in the in the big end of town and to speak to these guys is just so inspiring and, and then... It's amazing how nice and friendly they are and how forthcoming of just giving this information. So I'm really hoping that, um, yeah, I can spread the word of the podcast and that it'll get out there and, and people can listen to it when they're at the gym or taking the dog for a walk or whatever they're doing and, uh, and, and really learn some, you know, some, not only hear some great stories, but learn some really hard facts and strategies that they can hopefully apply to their own music careers. And um, yeah, man, that's that's sort of that's it in a nutshell where I'm at, I suppose. Oh, I just had a baby as well, so that's interesting being a first time dad at 43. But it's very cool. Thanks, Stuff. man. Just on the uh, music business facts, yeah, it's awesome to you know not only have an Australian doing it, but just someone tackling the business side of the music industry. One of your first interviews was with Alex Webster of Cannibal Corpse, and it was very interesting just how you tackled uh, Alex Webster and getting him to sort of speak more on the managerial side of Cannibal Corpse as an independent uh, management scenario. I thought because they were signed to Metal Blade that they would just be managed by Metal Blade. And then going through the list of podcasts you've done, hearing from Shepard, who you taught. Yep, yep. Amy was one of my students there. Yeah. yeah. And then obviously Michael Chug, who ended up managing those guys, which is just a huge name. And my favorite one was actually Graham Nixon from uh, Resist Records. Just hearing some interesting perspectives on, you know, launching the career of a band like Parkway Drive and even just uh, the approach to running their label and, and how they go about it. And I guess I just want to ask you, like, how do you get such amazing people to interview? And do you have some sort of, a, I guess, a schedule or just get people who you think can give a varied insight into the music business yeah okay well um i suppose uh as a byproduct of just being in the industry and and doing all that stuff which i talked about i was pretty i was pretty lucky that i knew quite a few people um you know as you know you just you sort of network and you know i always tell my students particularly especially first years you say look man the, the secret of this music stuff is that you've got to immerse yourself in your local scene whatever it is and you've got to network you can't be shy you've got to get out there you've got to put yourself out there and um I suppose I had a little bit of an, an advantage to anyone who was just starting because, you know, I knew Graham Nixon and, um, you know, from, from doing shows and, and stuff from years ago. And uh, um, I had friends who were friends of Michael Chug. So when I sort of put together my, my uh, proposal and just sort of 
you know, again, I was doing what I'm telling students to do. I was putting myself out there. And uh, to be honest, man, since I've been doing this with people that I don't know, um, people like Paul Field and stuff, it's um, it's been just uh, really putting myself out there on LinkedIn. I've just found LinkedIn. I never really took LinkedIn that seriously. I sort of always thought it was just sort of like a uh, a Facebook for grownups, but I, um, I just sort of started playing with it and saw how many people were on there. And, um, yeah, a lot of my stuff has, has come directly from just, you know, um, friending or asking for connections on, uh, famous people on LinkedIn, like the Paul Field one, for instance, just sort of asked him to befriend me. And a lot of them don't get back to you, but a lot of them do. And then when I had that, I, I put together a, a formal proposal that sort of, you know, looks good. And, um, I suppose I've, I spent a fair bit of so, uh, time making the website look good. And then, yeah, just sort of, you know, putting it out there saying, look, this is what I'm doing. Would you like to be a guest? And, uh, you know, some people you don't hear back from, but then surprisingly some people you do. And uh, I also think um, getting Michael Chug was a bit of a, um, uh, you know, I was lucky, but I also really pushed it. I had about, you know, four or five different people that knew him and I was pushing him from different angles as well as, you know, bang, banging on the front door. And, and when he said yes, it gave me, I think, some legitimacy and people who didn't know me took me seriously. So, I think when people go to the website and they see Chuggy on the front cover, they go, okay, well, this guy must, he can't be too much of a dick because yeah. if Chug talked to him, then, uh, um, yeah. So, you know, I'm very thankful for Michael Chug for that. Yeah. Wow. But that's, yeah, that's, it's, it's just really a matter of, um, like in, like being in your band guys, you know, and, and doing your management, you've got to, uh, you've just got to put yourself out there as professionally as you can and be prepared that you're going to get some knockbacks, but then also you're going to get some surprises. I, I won't mention the name, but, uh, I've got an interview next week with one of the biggest names in metal and, you know, um, I don't want to mention it yet in case something does go wrong, but it's all it's all lined up. It's about to go ahead, and I, I got it just by you know uh, sending him a, uh, a request on Facebook. Yeah, hmm. uh, nothing happened, and then I sent another one, and nothing happened, and then I sent another one. And then I got a response from his uh, personal assistant. I explained what it was all about, and uh, yeah, so stay tuned. Awesome, but, man. Yeah. I'm very excited. Hope I can talk to the dude. I'll be very nervous. It's very interesting that you're actually going about it sort of in the same way that you're teaching bands to go about it, like actually doing a proposal to get that. I mean, from our sort of humble little podcast, we, yeah, we're just actually going for people that we know we can get hold of. And um, that's a tip for us right there. Yeah. Well, look, I, I always tell my students the uh, the formal proposal, the piece of paper, it's, it's really important because in the music industry, there's so many, um, there's so many gunners out there, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And they don't ever deliver. But besides, that there's also a lot of people that they might have the best intentions but let's let's take for example trying to book a book a venue if if you're trying to book a venue and the venue's never dealt with you before you can imagine how many people that you know contact these venue managers or book you know whatever and say you know we want to book the room on a friday night if they've never worked with you before they don't really have anything to judge you on to base you on and it's a big risk for them because you know running a venue you've only got a couple of nights a week to actually fill the room so I say to my guys, look, do everything that you do. You ring them up, you email them, you say all that. But then once you've spoken to them, you say, look, thanks for your time. Can I send you through my proposal? And in that proposal, it's like a sales pitch. You know, you want to sell to them that you're not just another dick off the street that wants to put on a show. You're actually someone that's really put a lot of thought into this. You've thought about the bands. You've thought about how many people they'll pull. Maybe you've shown some evidence of uh, uh, what sort of numbers they've been pulling at other places, putting in a, uh, a marketing plan to show what you're actually going to do to promote the show. And and, and just try and instill in that person, you know, that gatekeeper, if you like, that, you know, you're worth having a bit of a punt on. And um, then if you can get through that door and you, and you can, you know, put on a successful event, then hopefully uh, the next time you go to work with them, you've already got that relationship established. And, you know, whatever it is, whether it's, um, like I said, booking the venue or trying to get someone for your podcast, I think it just comes down to trying to be as absolutely professional as you possibly can. And, uh, there's so much music out there. There's so many people that want to be in this business. You've got to try and uh, set yourself apart. You've got to try and do something a little bit different. And I think it starts with your presentation, um, your image, and just presenting yourself in the most professional manner that you can. And then, of course, if you get the opportunity, um, you know, what's that saying? Um, under promise and over deliver. Absolutely. No, that's great to hear, man. Thanks for that. Um, and I guess just sticking on the, the podcast for a little bit longer, um, j- just with podcasting and, and blogging and content marketing and that sort of thing, um, it, it's really taking off, I, I guess, um, in the time that we're in at the moment. Um, it can be an excellent new medium to get info out there to people around the world. Um, do you think podcasting and blogging are things that bands should be looking into themselves and taking advantage of, of a new medium to get their name out there or to share information? to their fans at all? Oh, absolutely. I think it's something that um, every band should be doing. Um, not every band will do it because it's, it's it's a lot of work and I suppose you've got to have someone that's going to drive the whole thing. But 
you know, if you think of your if your marketing um, your marketing plan and you talk about you know different touch points, and I always talk about touch points, and a touch point is anywhere where a potential fan or a potential customer might come into contact with you and your business. And, um, you know, it's like fishing. If you're sitting in a boat and you've got one line in, then, you know, you've got one chance of catching a fish. If you've got, you know, 10 lines in, you might not catch anything, but you've got certainly a lot more chance of, you know, a fish going by and giving you a nibble. So podcasting, I think you're right, guys. It's, um, I think we're at the wild west. I think it's just at the start. I mean, you're seeing now the new cars coming out in, uh, in 2014 for Mazda, for Holden, for Volvo, and they've all got, um, you know, podcasting apps, one touch button like Stitcher in the car where, you know, you it's just going to be the future where people will have their own pre-programmed what they want to listen to, press the button and it'll already have been downloaded and ready to play at the listener's um, request rather than just, you know, copying what the radio wants to serve up to you. So, yeah, man, I think it's uh, very important and, um, you know, what you guys are doing I think is great because it, it just sort of, again, it sets you apart and it gives you another avenue to... Uh, connect with people. Yeah, totally. And having such an entrepreneurial outlook and business focus, do you have any tips on uh, healthy habits to keep proactive or even favorite motivational quotes and things like that? Oh, good one. Um, look, I do. I have a lot. I, I read a lot of that stuff and I always have. It's just sort of something that, um, how am I going to answer this? <laughs> well, well per- personal habits, I suppose, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm 43 years old now and I, I treat myself a lot differently than I did when I was 19. Um, I try and make sure just those basic stuff that you, I guess when you get a bit older, you start thinking about, you know, I try and eat healthy. Uh, I try and get enough sleep. I try and not smash my body too hard with, you know, um, anything too bad. Um, you know, I'm not straight edge or anything. I, I know, in fact, I love a few beers, but you know, I like going to the gym. I like running. I like exercising my dogs. Um, and I just think that, you know, if you're all, if you get fucked up and you're, and you're smashed and, uh, it just doesn't give you the best, um, opportunity to be able to, you know, be creative because you're sort of recovering. And, um, it's interesting speaking to a lot of these, you know, successful, uh, people that I've been speaking to recently, they've all sort of touched on it saying, you know, the music businesses that got that reputation, but, um, you know, people don't want to work with you if you've got the reputation that you're the one that can't be relied upon because you get too stuffed up or, you know, you're not reliable because you're late or, you know, all that stuff. So I think it just comes down to knowing when there's a time to party and then, and then partying. Yeah. I, I guess for me, I, I've always been really, really ambitious and, uh, just, you know, I think you've only got one life and, uh, you got to make the most of it. And so, um, yeah, don't just sort of waste it because time's your most valuable, um, resource and the older you get, the more you realize that. And uh, in terms of a quote, well, my old man was a pretty harsh old copper and he used to always just sort of say to me, um, you know, everyone's responsible for their own actions. And he had a couple of different meanings with that. But I, I also take it that, you know, that you are responsible for, for what happens to you in your life to a great degree. And, um, you know, if you're the sort of guy that just sits on the couch and watches TV and, you know, goes to work and that's your day, well, that's the kind of life you can expect. But if you're, uh, you know, if you can be a little bit more uh, strict with yourself and, and set some goals and then actually put the work in to implement that goals, well, who knows what can happen. So especially when you're dealing with musicians, you know, people, if you, if you want to be a successful musician, it's so competitive and so many people would like to do it as well. It soon um, sorts out the people that just sort of have it as a, uh, you know, as a pipe dream compared to those that, you know, really, uh, you know, have, have a serious hard crack at it and put the work ethic in it that's required to even have a chance of being successful. Absolutely. Great stuff. Uh, we could probably take a, a tip or two from that with uh, the drinking. We're definitely uh, guilty ourselves of having a few too many on stage sometimes, I'd say. But yeah, we like to think we can um, balance it with being um, moderately professional as well. Um, but yeah, sticking on the, the business side of things there, um, I mean, obviously musicians are in it for the, the love of music and creative expression, but do you think musicians should also be treating their band like a business? Um, so things like budgeting, finance, marketing, structures, grants, music sync um, that you've spoken about on your show as well, things like that. I mean, yeah, just treating the band as a business. Would you have any any tips on how they can do that or, or whether that's important or not? I think if you're serious about it, I mean, the musicians don't necessarily have to be, but somebody has to be. If, you, if you're going to be serious about trying to make it in the music industry, and when I say make it, I'm talking about um, replacing a hobby and trying to actually turn it into you know uh, a regular revenue sort of source of income that you can survive upon. If you're the sort of musician, and I know that these musicians exist, they they don't really have that sort of um, side of their brain which they want to switch on. They they want to be creative, they want to be artists, and there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, you need that. You need to have a good product or 
you know, it doesn't matter how great your business structures are. If you've got shit music or you're a shit band or you're a shit muso, then it doesn't really matter, does it? Totally. So I think you've got to have a good product, um, whatever that might be, your music, your, your live show, your packaging, everything that all comes together that, you know, um, whether you're a band or a DJ or whatever. And um, then you need somebody that aside from that can, yeah, it can be that one that says, okay, well, I'm going to take charge here. I'm going to take the reins and I'm going to drive because so many bands just seem to sort of go around in circles. And I know, you know, with my band at the start, we were the same. We were just kids and we just wanted to write music. We never thought about, and we wanted to be successful, but we never thought about actually treating it, you know, like a brutal, harsh business. And if you want to be successful, I think you do have to have someone who can do that. And this is why I say to my business students, you know, a lot of a lot of my music business students, they're not musicians, but they want to be involved in the industry. And I say, well, you know, if you can get all these skills that I'm trying to teach you, what that's going to make you is incredibly valuable to a group of musicians who don't have that business uh, knowledge. And that's when, they, you know, you come in and, and hopefully uh, create some sort of management opportunity where uh, you do all that, um, what many musicians think is boring work. And, you know, you take uh, 20 odd percent um, of the musician's money for, for doing that. So, yeah, I think someone's got to be able to uh, to drive that business bus in the uh, creative enterprise, definitely. Yeah, for sure. And no, I couldn't agree agree more with all that. So, nice one. I've been in bands in the past and going on tours and a few printouts of itineraries and um, maybe some accommodation booked in advance makes the band think that they've gone the extra mile. But really, that's just organisation and day-to-day housekeeping almost. When a tour doesn't go so well, it seems to be why a lot of bands do crumble. You know, as much of it is a hobby and a love, um, yeah, it does fall apart when you're getting no return because people just can't afford to do an expensive hobby such as a touring band, especially metal. No, look, I agree with you. I think, you know, you, you just got to face the fact that trying to do music for a career is uh, ridiculously and freakishly hard, especially if you're playing heavy metal in Australia. But, you know, having said that, it, it's certainly not impossible. And you just got to look at bands like, um, well, look at Parkway Drive. They're, an, they're a, an amazing example. I remember when they first applied to be on Metal for the Brain, uh, Graham sent me a press kit. They were just another band. And now, you know, you, you look what they're doing and what they've achieved and what they're continuing to accomplish. And, uh, you know, those guys must be making some pretty good money, I reckon. There's a lot of income being generated and the world's changing all the time. And, uh Look, I say you can do it, but, you know, um, you've got to be lucky. And when your lucky opportunity comes around, you've got to be so prepared to jump on it. And, and again, going back to all that stuff about being as professional as you possibly can and having a good product, making sure that you are a good band, you've got good songs, you've got a good live show, you've got your uh, marketing all put together. And then, yeah, based on what you were saying, that you've got your shit together, that you've sort of set some goals, you're working towards those goals. You've looked at business planning, marketing plans, business structures, you know, all that stuff, which is really uncreative. Um, well, actually, I, I contradict myself because I think actually business can be very creative, but I think also a lot of musicians think, well, that's boring. I don't want to be the dude that's doing GST and bass statements and, and all that crap. I want to I want to be, you know, rocking and rolling and partying. But, you know, again, if you want to um, tr- at least try to make that, uh, that jump from just being a hobby to someone that might actually be able to do it for real, um, definitely you've got to have it um, a business focus and actually, you know, a plan and then, you know, actively taking some steps to go towards it. I did a really good uh, um, interview podcast with a guy called John Tyrrell and John started the Bjorn Again concept uh, cover band for ABBA. And, you know, they're making millions of dollars every year. And It's unreal. I'm going to release this podcast in a couple of weeks, but the guy was just a business, a music business, uh, you know, I don't want to say genius, but he was certainly a freak and just really laid it out to me how, you know, here's this super successful band turning over millions and millions of dollars every year playing other people's music. So they're not even getting songwriting royalties. You know, this is all just from the concept and the live show. And he said that the band would sit down every fortnight and have a full-on meeting that went for an hour that had a proper, you know, schedule, you know, a, a running of what they were going to discuss. They'd take uh, notes of the of the meeting and then they'd have some uh, some outcomes, you know, some actions that, and say, okay, well, we're going to meet in two weeks. And then when they'd meet in the next two weeks, say, okay, well, you were supposed to do this and you were supposed to do this. Why didn't you do that? Aren't you treating this seriously? You know, they're really just treating it like you were running a company. And, you know, if you look at uh, Bjorn again, if you don't know about them, go and check them out because uh, they are just doing, they're just killing it. They are absolutely killing it. So... 
Yeah, I, I mean, and that's the other thing I'm loving about doing these podcasts is just, you know, I've been doing this for well over 20 years and I'm still learning every day. So it's it's just awesome. For sure. Like you've mentioned that you're not you're just still there at the music moment. these days. Oh, am I gone again? Yeah, yeah, you're back, but... Am I Bjorn again? <laughs> yeah, like a live product is actually a really big thing to incorporate these days because of the diminishing CD sales. And now that everything is moving into the digital realm, bands are finding it harder to make money from that side of the coin. But as Cabba's favourite quote goes, don't get bitter, get better. So do you think bands should be searching for new opportunities for exposure and embracing the digital world or should they stick to their live shows etc oh look well again it comes back you gotta have good songs you gotta have uh those songs recorded well um you've got to have the incredible work ethic that it takes to actually get your shit together and go out and tour those songs you guys have touched on how expensive and how hard that is so it's an interesting um business situation you find yourself in because you're you know often losing money just to try and get noticed uh, you've got to be lucky. There's a um, there's a document that I put on my website, which I give away for, to people for free um, if you give me your email address. And but I'm happy to talk about it. it was, I've I've basically lifted it from uh, John Watson, who's a legendary Australian manager. Um, you know, looks after Silverchair and Paul Mack and uh, Missy Higgins and you know a couple of others. And it's kind of obvious, but at the same time, when you look at it, you go, "Wow!" And he sort of says, "Well, this is what I think you need to be successful." And I really agree with him. He sort of says, "You know, you've got to have a good singer." You've got to have good musicians. You've got to be lucky. You've got to have good songs. You've got to have good work ethic. You've got to have something special about you, you know, something that sort of people can talk about, some sort of story. And, um, yeah, you know, there's so many things that come together to being successful. Um, and, and I guess to go back to your question, obviously the live performance is the big one. I mean, you can't download a, uh, an amazing live performance. I think especially in heavy metal, if you've got a great sounding record, um, people might download it for free. But if you can give some sort of value add to it, people will still buy it. And then I think, yeah, you know, all these other avenues that are, are starting to spring up to that that can potentially make money for the group. I mean, go listen to the interview I did with Tyler McLaughlin that you mentioned and, and music licensing, I think is going to be a huge growth area in the future because we've got so many, so much media coming online with the internet that programmers are going to be absolutely screaming out for quality uh, product, quality music that they can put into their shows and their, you know, their movies and their ads and stuff like this. And, um, you know, that's a fantastic way to get exposed and also a fantastic way to, to make some money. So it just comes down to this, you know, you want to absorb as much education as you can for your business. Do you have the, the work ethic and the drive to actually implement it? Because as you guys would know, it's it's fun, but it's also a freaking, you know, ton of hard work and, and, and can be very expensive as well, which can be prohibitive for most musicians. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and look, I guess being a lecturer at TAFE um, yourself, do you, do you think there's a place in the music industry like music studies? Um, I know some people find careers out of it, some don't. Myself, I did go to SAE college um, when I was younger, but yeah, just being a bit young and unsure, I guess um, I just expected a job to fall into my lap without any dedication for making it really work. Do you see good or bad habits of students in your classes that reflect whether they do go on to succeed in the industry or not? Oh, look, absolutely. And in fact, the very first day that I, I meet my students every year, I, I lay it out to them. You know, I talk about, there's a great business author called Robert Kiyosaki, which you may or may not have had a heard of. Yes, definitely. He has his cash flow quadrant. And I think it's a really interesting thing to talk about where he says, you know, money can only be made in sort of a couple of basic ways. And one of them is you become an employer, you know, you work for somebody else. Another one is that you become an investor and you invest in something that goes up in value and then you've got small business and big business. And I say to my students, you know, the chances of you actually getting your diploma and walking out of here and getting a job is really, really slim. A, because the jobs are so coveted and few and far between and B, the number of people now that have diplomas and have degrees in, in music business is so many and consistently growing. You've got to have more than just the bit of paper. I do honestly believe that the bit of paper does help because on a number of levels, it, it does give you at least from for my students this is what I strive for I do my absolute best um, and I'm very passionate about empowering them with everything I can and knowledge about the music industry we put them in situations for their assessment where they have to engage with the music industry so we force them to you know put shows on and to deal with contracts and to interact with you know venues and agents and uh, other acts and all that sort of stuff so they get that real world live experience that you can't teach in the classroom but then I'm again going back to what I've touched on before I am massive on saying look 
if this is really what you want to do in your heart, you can't just do that. I mean, you need, you need to do all that as well. But on top of that, you want to be networking constantly. You want to be, you know, uh, engaging with people that potentially um, in the future are going to be able to give you a leg up in whatever sort of sector of the music industry you want to go towards. And yes, you might get a job, but most of the people from my experience who are getting those jobs working for the, uh, the nice record companies and stuff like that, you know, they're doing internships, which is, you know, in itself a form of networking. Uh, they're working for free. They're making coffees. And then when those positions come up, that's, they're the people that are getting those jobs. So, you know, if you do want to go and work for a publishing company or a record company or one of the big promoters, uh, in my opinion, um, yes, do the diplomas, do the degrees, uh, kick ass in it as hard as you can, apply yourself 100%. But at the same time, you know, go and, and connect with these um, these people, these organizations and say, hey, you know, I am really dying to just come and work with you guys and I'll do anything I can and uh, and get your foot in the door there and, and make the coffees and, and be the first on the on the premises on the day and the last to leave and, you know, volunteer for everything you can and just network, network, network. And uh, and that's from the job perspective. And then I say to them, and, and then apart from that, the reality is you still might not get a job. So the thing I love about the music industry is that, you know, it is a can-do industry in the sense that you know if you want to make something happen you can create something from nothing and that's what I like to show the students and we do it by uh, we run band competitions where you know something doesn't exist uh, we brand it we find a venue uh, we put out the marketing campaign to attract contestants we uh, engage with sponsors and get really kick-ass prizes so that bands will actually want to enter this band competition so we've got one coming up in Brisbane in May where, you know, we've got literally thousands of dollars worth of prizes. So if you're a young band, you go, well, you know, this is going to be a really well-organized show. It's going to be really well-run, really well-promoted. And then uh, I might walk away with, you know, two or 3000 bucks in, in gear. So, you know, just by doing those things, you're creating these opportunities. Um, the students get to, to see how it all sort of unfolds uh, across the spectrum, dealing with agents, dealing with ticketing, dealing with, um, you know, publicists, dealing with bands, all the hard stuff that is to do with that, but also showing that, you know what, we're going to make a lot of money. We're going to have money coming through the door. And this is all something that we just made up out of our mind. So, you know, the music industry, it's, it's tough and it's hard, but it's also if you're passionate for it and you work hard at it, you know, I do honestly believe you can do it. And if I was to put a figure on it with my students, it's probably 5% who come and start the diploma as, you know, an 18 or 19 or 20 year old kid actually have the long-term vision to say, you know what, I really want to do this so much that I'm going to sacrifice, you know, you know, maybe a cushy public service job where I do get fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year for a number of years whilst I try and actually have a, a red hot go at making it in this entertainment industry. Fantastic. You got approached to teach at TAFE. Did you have any formal training or perhaps a previous um, diploma of education or something like that? Or did you just sink into it based purely on industry experience? Well, to be honest, it was the industry experience that it, that what got me the job. But at the same time, um, when I when I was pushing hard to be in a band, when I was when I was 19 and in my in my heart, all I wanted to do was play drums in Alchemist. I knew I didn't want a real day job because I wanted to tour, I wanted to write songs, I wanted to have more time on my hands. And so I went to study and back then there were no courses like this. And so I did a, um, a communication degree, which I used to joke was sort of like a, you know, a Clayton's degree, the degree you, you get when you're not really getting a degree. But that actually came back to actually help me. So I could sort of say to, um, you know, these academic people on these boards who are giving me these jobs, yes, look, I've got, you know, 20 odd years experience doing this, this, this and this. But I also have the, uh, you know, the formal academic qualification. And one thing I think I didn't mention is that, you know, if you do do a music business diploma or a music business degree, one thing it does show a potential, you know, partner or employee is that, you know, well, this guy, you can't be a complete idiot if you've, if you've actually completed this diploma because, you know, it takes a year of your life to do and you've got to apply yourself. So I didn't have formal teacher training, but I did have a degree and then I did go off and do my, um, the TAA, what they call it, you know, so the uh, teaching for TAFE. Yeah, cool. And on to your time in the actual metal scene. Um, Cabba especially uh, is a big fan of Alchemist um, and we've seen you guys heaps of times and you're a huge part of the Aussie metal scene for well over a decade. Can you tell us a bit about the band and perhaps your biggest successes with them and sort of what you learnt throughout that time? Oh, geez, man, this could be another whole <laughs> podcast. Look, I was really, really lucky. I get asked this occasionally and I think one of the biggest successes that I had personally personally with Alchemist was that I managed to meet three other dudes 
who were as passionate as trying to succeed in a band as I was. And we had the same lineup for over 20 years. And, you know, I can't think of any Australian band that's that's done that. I'm sure there might be, but I can't think of any Australian band that's had the same lineup for 20 years without any real success. And that was a real that was a real success, I think, in, to start with um, in terms of something maybe a bit more tangible. When I started out as a kid with a dream to be... Uh, to play drums and to and to um, and to sort of make it, I suppose, as a as a as a metal dude on the drums and in a band. If someone had told me, you know, that I would have been playing festivals like you know Grass Pop in Belgium, fifty thousand people wow. sharing the stage with you know Morbid Angel, Death Angel, um, supported uh, headline by Iron Maiden, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I think right at the end of our career, we we certainly um, managed to. Uh, achieve some things which never in my wildest dreams I probably deep down in my heart thought I'd really get to do. So it was pretty cool. I was very, you know, we're, we're very proud of that. That's awesome. Totally, man. And um, I guess, yeah, still on the, on the metal side of things, um, you did metal, mention Metal for the Brain uh, Festival earlier. So yeah, we were just wanting to perhaps um, just get your, your role in that festival. Um, you know, was it successful and, and how was the Aussie metal scene back then? Um, and you did say the Canberra scene was, was pretty huge back in its day. Um, so if you can, yeah, just perhaps um, tell us a bit about the history of metal for the brain that'd be awesome yeah okay so um the canberra metal scene grew to be quite large predominantly at the start at least because of armored angel which was uh you know they were sort of australia's perhaps first well one of the first sort of bands that was sort of perceived to be extremely heavy and uh you know they they achieved some they, they were pioneers basically you know they were, they were a great band they were a great bunch of dudes and you know they did things like uh you know released i think they released australia's first metal cd metal in the terms wow. of you know death metal yeah and you know they got to play the big day out so you know they were they were like this you know big band they toured hard they had a big following and because they came out of canberra i guess canberra got some of the kudos i gotta say also for adam uh, who you know from alchemist he started alchemist when he was 16 or 17 and canberra had a really strong crazy underage scene back in sort of 86 87 where you know alchemist was playing with bands like uh, undead and, and pulling you know six seven hundred kids at a, at a youth cafe with no grog Jesus. wow yeah it was a pretty amazing time and so with sort of alchemist and um armored angel and then a couple of other bands like undead and precursor and all these bands it just sort of grew, grew into this pretty healthy scene and um we started going to sydney to watch you know some of the more successful Aussie bands at the time, bands like Mortal Sin and Hobbs Angel of Death and Escape and, you know, a number of bands. And Mortal Sin ran a, uh, a benefit show at the Horden Pavilion for a young kid. I think he had uh, some sort of heart cancer or he needed a heart transplant and they called it Metal for the Heart. And it was a really big show. Like, I think it was like, you know, pretty much a sold out Horden Pavilion and it was it was a great event. And uh, yeah, Joel from Armored Angel, I think that's where he got the idea for Metal for the Brain because one of, like I said, his mate who he went to school with went out on his 19th birthday and... Um, got punched in the street when he stopped into he sorry he stepped in to stop the fight and yeah. as the story goes he fell back and hit his head and never sort of recovered his consciousness from that or you know he became a, a vegetable essentially so um joel started a benefit concert for his mate called metal for the brain and a couple of bands played and it was successful everyone played for free um it was really well promoted and marketed and then it happened again the next year and the next year and the next year and every year it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and when uh armored angel the original sort of the two green brothers and lucy sort of split ways joel sort of my memory of it is he said look man do you want to take this over because he knew i was right into to booking shows and um yeah he entrusted it with me and, and we spoke i spoke to my band and um, basically me and adam ran ran it and uh roy helped with all the sort of marketing and uh, johnny did it all finance and you know we sort of split up the jobs and said okay this is what we're going to do we're going to make it bigger we're going to make it better we're going to you know we were again very ambitious and we um we had very big plans for it and you know we implemented it and yeah it did it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and uh you know i guess um the problem with the whole thing though was when we were doing this we didn't really have any competition you know we didn't have the brad wessons and the dices and the the other promoters that were bringing out international bands we sort of had the biggest metal show in the country i'm pretty sure that before soundwave metal for the brain was the biggest festival you know that you could go to in australia for metal and um as the years ticked over we could see that it was starting to get a little bit more risky because you know people were starting to bring slayer to town or morbid angel to town or whoever it might have been to town so the notion of this all aussie thing uh was becoming a bit more of a risk because as the crowds got bigger as the show got bigger 
the expenses got bigger and the whole premise for metal for the brain was that when we run when we run it and we make all this money which we did every year we give it all away to the charity now of course that's what the original intention was to do but um, because every year we'd give the money away we had no sort of um, capital to finance the next year and you know we'd find that the expenses had gone up to for the room hire or the PA and artists were traveling from here and there and wanted more money and so we sat down one day and uh, we sort of said you know if this thing did ever fall on its ass we could be a hundred grand in the hole personally and it got to the stage it was a very very difficult decision to make but it got to the stage where we thought right let's just do one last one we won't do the John Farnham thing or the kiss thing and say this is the last one and then you know and just do that we we marketed it and we said, this is the absolute last one. We wanted Metal for the Brain to retire to the history books as this amazing event that lasted for, uh, you know, I can't remember if it was 10 or 12 or 14 years or whatever it was. And um, it never failed. It, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it peaked um, when, it, when it was at its biggest, which is essentially what happened. And, uh, you know, we'd seen festivals in so like, like Holland, like the Dynamo Festival, which, you know, grew to over 100,000 people. And then um, because of things that happened, you know, it, it it didn't top that and got smaller and smaller and smaller. And we didn't want to do that. We didn't want to drive metal for the brain and 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 have it go smaller. And we also didn't want to lose any money. So we, we put it to sleep. And, um, you know, we still get asked, if, is there going to be another one? And uh, I can tell everyone I'm pretty sure there won't be, <laughs> at least with me involved anyway. Oh, big success by the sounds of it anyway. That's great. No, they were great days, you know. I mean, it was pretty much for Alchemist and for most bands, you know, the damages and the blood dusters. I mean, unless you were getting a massive international support, it was the biggest, it was the biggest Aussie show you you could play back then because yeah. you know we didn't have Soundwave and uh, very few bands got to play the big day out. I mean, Alchemists were very lucky. We got to play the big day out, which was uh, an amazing experience. But um, yeah, you know, I mean, you see the big day out seems to be in a bit of trouble now. Yeah, in Perth, I see. Yes, no, it's not looking good for our future over in the West. What are your thoughts on the Aussie metal or music scene in general? Um, any current pros and cons you've noticed? And um, I guess as a second part to that, are there any bands that you're excited by or excite you in terms of the direction of the scene and the way it's all heading? Oh, well, look, you put me on the spot now. I guess it depends on, I mean, metal's a very, I say it's become a very generic term because, you know, what does metal mean now? It can mean so many different things. I think it's great. I think the musicianship is certainly, you know, since the days that I was actively playing and touring, the bands are way better. They're more professional. Uh, you're seeing some great success. You're seeing these bands who are actually taking on, uh, you know, taking on their goals. And, you know, uh, you've just got to watch that Parkway Drive DVD, how yeah. they just picked themselves up and had no booking agent. And they only had, I think, one or two shows booked and just went over there and slept on the side of the road, you know. So I wouldn't say I'm a Parkway fan, but I really like what they do. And they've got a couple of songs that I sort of think, you know, that's 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 great. Um, I, I guess I'm pretty old school. Um, I like uh, I Exist. There's another Resist band with uh, my mate Josh Nixon there on guitar. Um, just trying to think. I mean, King Parrot. I'm, I'm in awe of King Parrot. Um, not so much of their music, although I do like their music, but just their work ethic. I think uh, Youngie and the Boys are, from my perspective, the hardest working band in Australia at the moment. And I can just see this absolute burning hunger inside them, you know, where they they just do things that a lot of other bands aren't prepared to do. Like, you know, I spoke to Youngie the other day and um, he says that when, they, when they're in one town and they play a show and it's the end of the night where a lot of bands are going out and partying or, you know, going back to the hotel or sleeping, he's he's running around putting up posters for the next time they come back around, you know. Yeah. I would say, you know, there, there's, a, there's a start and I'm sure there's plenty more. I've just got a bit of a, a brain freeze at the moment. Certainly agree with the, the King Parrot notion. Um, uh, I know those guys tour relentlessly and, and hitting the US soon as well. So I'm, um, yeah, really excited to see a, a band like that doing so well for sure. And I guess in, in regards to overseas um, metal scene, you did mention um, that Alchemist did score a a couple of festivals over there, some some really big ones with some big names. Um, just wanting to know how you guys went about that and how did you, did you score those festivals? Um, was there a lucky break or did you guys just really work your asses off? Um, was it labels, press kits, anything like that? Well, we certainly worked our asses off. I mean, we rehearsed three times a week for basically 15 years and that was just what we did. And, you know, most bands don't do that. I think the big break came for us when we actually got offered a deal by Relapse, which was uh, Relapse Records. We, you know, it was a label that we'd been courting if you like for many many years and we'd yep. send them demos and they'd say no not interested and it was as a result of a actually a synchronization opportunity we we got land we had our music publisher said to us uh look there's an american extreme sports uh, video producer wants to use your music but there's no money in it are you interested 
And uh, yeah, we said, yeah, look, why not? Uh, it was sold to us that it was going to be on primetime US uh, free-to-air television. And the story goes that, um, or at least the story in my head that I remember was that Matt Jacobson, the guy who uh, runs and owns Relapse, the guy that had been saying no to us for 10 years as we sent him demos and stuff, he uh, heard our music in the context of an extreme sport video on TV, said, wow, that's awesome, contacted us. And then uh, we did the deal with Relapse. And I think that just gave us a lot of uh, legitimacy, you know, that notion that uh, a record label brings a degree of prestige to a band. And um, once we had Relapse on side, it, it became a lot easier for uh, particularly Adam, who at this stage was doing most of the booking for the band. He was working very hard to do all this. And yeah, we got on a, a small um, Dutch festival, uh, Prog Power, and then we did a few other shows. We're, as a result of that, we did a, a UK tour with Cult of Luna. Um, we toured Europe with Textures. And when we did those sort of first few tours that we did, you know, when you get in front of people and you put on a kick-ass show, which, you know, I'm, I, I vouch that Alchemist always were pretty darn good live because we rehearsed so hard. Um, you get invited back and we got a booking agent and then that's sort of how it all sort of flowed on. So it was like little steps that sort of eventually started rolling all together. And um, yeah, that's, uh, I'm pre I mean, you might have to interview Adam one day because he was doing all of the work, but um, that's the vibe that I got. It was the notion that, um, you know, we were signed to relapse. That helped us get a booking agent when you had a booking agent over there working for you. Um, that led to uh, getting on some of these, you know, incredible shows, which they were. It was a dream come true to play Hellfest and to play Grass Pop and World Rock and, you know, all these awesome uh, big gigs in Europe. Yeah, no, there's not a lot of Aussie bands that get a chance like that, so it's, it's really awesome. I'm very proud of what we accomplished and, you know, it's, um, but like I said, uh, I don't want to sound egotistical, but I do believe that we worked harder than 90% of the other bands at the time, you know. When we started, I remember how shit we were and we just were all just determined to say, right, well, we're just going to keep going and we did. We just rehearsed and rehearsed and years ticked over and we kept releasing demos and then we kept releasing CDs and, um, you know, for a long time there, the, the four of us were just, we just had this burning passion and burning desire and anything that got in our way, we were just going to either smash through it or if we couldn't get through it, we'd go around it or over it or under it. It wasn't nothing stopping us. Yeah, that's awesome. And in terms of overseas shows or and touring, um, do you have any funny stories or, you know, did you ever have big technical hitches and these sort of things from your experiences over there? Well, touring Europe, it's, um, it's kind of the same as touring Australia, you know, so some shows, I remember we drove, I think one night to Switzerland, which was about 800 Ks and we played to three people <laughs> only to have to drive back 800 Ks to, you know, but we were like little kids. We were so excited and we could say, well, you know, wow, we played in Switzerland last night and, uh, you know, we played some amazing shows. We played some crap shows, but a lot of it was just like small club shows that you would, you know, if you were here in Brisbane playing the crowbar, you know, you'd get a couple of hundred people who were right into what you were doing and you got to meet these awesome people. And I think, um, it was just a very, very similar vibe. I mean, even touring with bands like Cult of Luna when we were doing around the UK, you know, I think we played a couple of shows on a a Tuesday night in, you know, in the middle of, of England somewhere. And, you know, some nights was just absolutely packed and awesome. And other nights you were just like, wow, I'm glad this isn't our show. We're not headlining. And, <laughs> you know, and 20 people are showing up. For sure. Um, and I guess, do you have any touring tips for musicians or drummers? Um, so anything in regards to like packing gear, booking a comm, setting up on stage, being professional all the time? I don't know, any, any unique crazy tips that you think might come in handy? Oh, geez, you put me on the spot there. I mean, I'm, I, you could write a book on that, couldn't you? <laughs> I can't really think of anything. I, I think it just is, um, like you guys were saying, it, it's so much fun and you get so excited and it, it, it can be a great party opportunity, but um, when you go over there and you are missing out on meals and you are, you know, you're lucky to get three or four hours sleep because you're waking up early and you're going to bed late and, um, you know, you can really wear yourself down and... Um, I can't remember how many tours of Europe we did, but it was either three or four, I'm pretty sure. And every time one of us got really sick, like really sick. And that was a combination of many things, but you know, your immunity's down, there's all these crazy bugs flying around and um, you just got to look after yourself because um, sure, partying's great, but uh, if you party too hard too soon, it you know can impact on your performance. So I guess just the one that comes off the top of my head is to say to, to, to people listening, if you ever do it, you get, get yourself in that opportunity to um, maybe save the partying for the end of the tour where you really go crazy and, and uh, let your hair down then because um, if you do it too soon, you might burn out and then you'll be playing shows and people will be seeing you and they'll walk away with the opinion, well, geez, I've heard good things about them, but I saw them live and fuck, they were crap, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, at the end of our UK tour, Dyson actually spent the night in hospital with a serious flu, partially due to it being freezing and snowing over there. But also, yeah, you do just miss meals and miss sleep. And it is actually harder than people think just to stay on top of your health and things like that. Oh, I'd heard Dyson was in hospital for some venereal disease over there. But anyway, <laughs> I'm just joking, ladies. He's a very clean man, I've heard. You've got a bit of a background in, well, a lot of a background in booking bands and shows. And you've been working on the Bastard Fest tour the last few times it's uh, happened. What do you think of the current touring market in Australia? And should more bands be booking their own gigs and tours as opposed to relying on questionable oversaturation of promoters, pay to play and buy-ons, etc.? Yeah, look, it's interesting, isn't it? It's one of those catch-22s because it's hard to build an audience unless you're touring, but it's hard to tour if you've got, you know, no audience to play to. And uh, I guess all I can talk about is my experience with, with my band. You know, I always tell people the story that we would get in our little van or back then we didn't even hire vans. We were using our own little shitty cars and we would drive to Sydney and we'd play a gig to, you know, maybe five people or if, you know, we might do a support. We got, we started getting supports with bands like Sadistic Execution and we were the support act. And while we were playing, there'd be maybe 10 people watching and everyone else playing pool. And then, and then when we went off, you know, Sad X had come on and play to a packed house. We just got used to this mindset that, uh, all right, well, we're just going to play. We're just going to keep playing. And it was just it was just common that we'll go up, we'll have a jam on stage to nobody because there'll be no one watching. And uh, we probably did that for a couple of years, you know. We, we just weren't deterred. We were just, again, going back to that burning passion. And eventually, uh, I guess we got a bit better and we started writing better songs and we became a better band. And then uh, I remember one night at Click, we, we drove, I think it was to Sydney and there was all these people there and we were like, we were headlining, I think, and we thought what's going on? There must be something happening here tonight at the pub and they were there to see us. So <laughs> Michael Chug put it really great in the interview I did with him. He said, look, it's just like, he basically said it's something like, it's like smacking your head against, you know, a brick wall. If you keep smacking it for long enough and hard enough, eventually the brick wall will come down and then somebody will uh, give you a hand up and, and help you on your way. And I suppose for most people, unless you have that absolute you know in the pit of your gut burning desire to do it uh you start smacking your head against a brick wall for for long enough and you go well that's not for me you know there's got to be a better way but that's just the strategy we took i'm sure there's other ways to and probably better ways to do it but you know we just wanted to play our music as many places as we could as far and wide as we could and that's what we did and uh we never made it in the sense of making it, you know, we never sort of uh, made a fortune out of it, but geez, we had a good time. And, and, and like I said, we had that longevity with our career and, uh, you know, we got to play some pretty amazing shows. So again, very good times. Yeah. I mean, you guys definitely stamped your mark on, on the Aussie metal scene and you'll be a name that everyone will remember for sure. And sure. You got some awesome memories, like you said, from, from everything you guys have done. So it's really awesome. Yeah. Thanks, man. No, no worries. Um, but yeah, look, we'll start wrapping it up, Rodney, but just a couple of quick ones to end with being a, a budding podcast yourself do you have any favorite music industry podcasts or perhaps books even that you you might listen to or read uh well i always i always give uh shane simpson's music business um a plug i should be getting a commission because i'm sure i've sold a lot of those books for him but it really is a good book um he's basically considered the uh the authority on music business in Australia. It's easy to read. You don't read it like a novel. You can just have it sitting on your shelf. And then when an issue comes up in your band, you can sort of just open that chapter. And like I said, you can understand it and really be informed. So yeah, that's Shane Simpson's music business. And yeah, look, I'm going to give myself a shameless plug, music business facts. That's what I'm sort of setting myself up to try and be as a, a go-to sort of uh, uh, online area for people to listen to these podcasts that I'm doing with these professionals. And um We'll see how it goes. I mean, it's certainly uh, gaining in momentum, so I'm quietly confident. As I said before, Cameron, I do listen to a lot of podcasts and we had been listening to Music Business Facts. Man, I was blown away with the quality of your guests and a lot of the tips and um, yeah, the approach to all that. And what I did like is throughout this interview, you've been also subtly plugging it as we go through, which is <laughs> uh, yeah, nice little business strategy there. But um, yeah, I'd recommend to everyone to listen to that because yeah, it's it's seriously good resource. No, well, thanks. And I appreciate that. And the other thing I want to say to anyone listening is I'm not trying to sell anything. You know, I'm in this lucky position where I actually get paid in a day job to teach this stuff. And I just want to empower more bands to know what they're doing, you know, so they don't make, you know, these crazy mistakes or sign these stupid deals or get themselves into a, a situation where they, where they regret. So, you know, that old notion that power is knowledge and, um, you know, share it around because that's, that's what it's all about. That's wicked. That's exactly what we're trying to do as well, really. I mean, we've done a fair amount of dumb things in our eight or nine years of existence. So if we can, um, you know, help people out along the way, I, I think that's, um, 
yeah, always a good thing if, if people are lending their advice on podcasts. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It's the way to go. I know a lot of bands are purely relying on Facebook events for promotion and, and as their main source of um, marketing. Are there any awesome online tools that you can recommend for bands to sort of step outside of that box? Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, um, I agree. A lot of people think, you know, you put up a Facebook events page and you invite your mates and that's all you've got to do. And look, I agree. That's a really important part of your strategy, but it goes back to the fishing analogy. You know, if you're sitting in the boat and you've got um, you've got a line in the Facebook happening, that, that's great and you should have that at a minimum. But yeah, I mean, there's so many other things. I think, uh, you know, all that's new social medias that's happening. It's, it's kind of like a sign of the times that you have to be on all of them. You know, you have to have a Twitter account. You have to be on uh, LinkedIn. As I said, LinkedIn has been amazing for me and I've, I've come to it quite late and it's just blown my mind with the uh, amount of people that I've been able to connect with there. Um, you know, Pinterest, Instagram, um, having your own website, um, doing your own blogging, um, YouTube, putting out your own videos to, to try and reach out to people, um, making your own, you know, visual commercials and putting them on YouTube and then linking them to all of your social media. Uh, the traditional notions of, um, you know, music marketing, just making a poster, going to gigs, handing out flyers, uh, sending press releases to the media, trying to get mentions in the street press, um, even though most of them now are online, but still, you know, connecting with those editors, connecting with those um, writers and trying, I suppose, what I try and teach my students is that don't just treat it like a gig, but really try and make it when you play an event, you know, that people get excited about, you know, you promote it three months out and you really try and not only hype it up, but make it something that people, you know, are prepared to put down the bong or turn off the TV or put down the PlayStation and, and get off their ass and go and see. And it's getting harder to do, but that's where I reckon it's at. You know, you've got to think of that analogy where you're sitting in a boat and you want to have, you know, as many touch points, as many lines in the water where you can try and can make a connection with either your, your existing fans or people that would potentially, if they got the chance to see you live, would, would, would be a fan. That's where it's at, I believe. Absolutely. Just with the, the fishing lines, um, one thing people could need to be careful of as well, if you do have all those lines out there in the water make sure you're watching them all in case you get a bite yeah that's true you want to make sure you've got a few fishermen in your band who are you know helping you out and keeping an eye on all the different spots you're fishing in absolutely because um as you as you point out it's it's a really full-on job like um i'm trying to do it now with this podcast and it's just like you know i'm reading all these uh social media experts and they're telling you these rules which they reckon they've worked out how you know you've got to be you know tweeting three times a day morning noon and evening and yeah. then you've got to be uh putting some sort of something of value on your Facebook page with a nice picture every time that's going to get attention, you know, and all these little things. And when you're trying to live your day-to-day life and do your day job and you're also trying to write songs and you're also trying to go to band practice and you're also trying to sleep and you're also trying to have relationships and friendships and social lives, man, it's, it's just becomes full on. So, uh, totally. No, you got to love it to, um, to do it. I think, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah no, that's all awesome. Um, and I guess just finally, um, what, what's, what's on the horizon for the year ahead with music business facts and what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Okay. So, um, musicbusinessfacts.com is my site and I'm about 15 to, well, I'm about probably 17 weeks ahead in my uh, interview. So I'm, I sort of, uh, that was another thing I didn't mention. I, I've been banking interviews before I sort of decided to go with it publicly so that, you know, if I do have a week or two where I can't interview somebody, um, I can release some interviews. But look, I've got, I really do have some amazing interviews coming up with, and, and I'm sometimes just pinching myself going, wow, this person said, yes, they'd speak to me. And then when I speak to them, I'm just blown away with the information they're, they're putting out there. So yeah. the whole thing with the podcast is to just um, hopefully just, you know, inspire people. And it's not, the inspiration is not coming from me, but, you know, be the be the guy that interviews this person that's, you know, either done something amazing or has a, an amazing story to tell or, you know, has made lots of money and, and talk about their mistakes they've made and their successes and strategies. And that's that's basically the uh, go with it. And then later on in the year, I'm going to, I've, I've actually got plans to launch another podcast, which is going to be Music Business Coach. And that's going to be more of a uh, subscription model where um, I'm going to sort of take on a consulting role if anyone's interested in, uh, in joining up to that. That'll, that'll remain to be seen. So I'll, I'll have the free element always with music business facts and obviously trying to in the future monetize it down the track so we'll see how that goes stay wow. posted cool you heard it first here on the blodgecast people so if you reckon um rodney's the sort of guy that could help you out definitely get in touch with him musicbusinessfacts.com thanks so much rodney really appreciate your time and and for being with us and giving us um yeah such valuable advice and some real gold nuggets for the listeners out there keep up the great work with the podcast really look forward to the year ahead and learning plenty from you and your awesome guests so thanks again no look no no worries 
guys. And thanks so much for having me on the show. And, and again, I think it's, a, it's really great that you guys are doing this. And uh, same back at you. Keep it up. Good stuff. We'll talk again very soon. Musicbusinessfacts.com. Check it out. Great. Well, thanks for that, Rodney. That was awesome for us to uh, be able to interview you like that and get so much valuable advice. No, that was, that was a really cool interview. Definitely stoked for that. And, and make sure you all go and check out um, yeah, the musicbusinessfacts.com podcast. Um, and yeah, he, he did mention a few of the big names that he's been interviewing there. Um, so you can go through his back catalogue. Um, there's all sorts of yeah, really awesome interviews um, that I've been really been enjoying myself listening to the last few weeks. Yeah, most recently I think I listened to Paul Fields, who's the manager of the Wiggles. It might sound you know crazy, some children's band, but yeah, that's a, a guy with a lot of background in the music industry and and really level-headed, real sort of person who had all sorts of tips that you could um, yeah really take on board getting into um, you know band management or just you know seeing opportunities in the music industry and jumping on board. Like Kava said, don't be deterred by uh, some of the bodies of work of some of these people just because they're completely different from the metal scene or you know, whatever the hell you you're into there's such serious good tips on there and obviously rod just lets them go for it and lets them unleash their whole back catalog of knowledge history and tips so yeah check it out it's uh well informative cool and as far as uh, claim the throne news and gidges go uh our next show at this stage well actually there's going to be one coming up pretty soon which we won't um drop the details of just yet but the next show is may 18th at this stage which is in perth at the amplifier bar with some very metal heavyweights Flesh God Apocalypse and Septic Flesh. We're lucky enough to have the support slot for those guys. So make sure you come along to that. Um, You can definitely get tickets now uh, online. You can actually get them a lot cheaper if you come directly from us. So we do have a number of tickets that we're allowed to sell at a cheaper price. So head to claimthrone.com, our merch store, which is claimthrone.bigcartel.com. And you can get them for 55 bucks. Um, normally they are 65 plus all sorts of extra fees for postage and booking fees and whatever. So yeah, you definitely save yourself at least yeah, anywhere between 10 to 20 bucks by getting them from us and we'll post them to you straight away. So get on board for that and come along to what will definitely be a massive metal show at the Amplify Bar on the 18th of May. You can also check out links to the Big Cartel from our website, claimthethrone.net, which has all your blogcast information and previous podcasts. We've got a few interviews up there you might not have heard. Yeah, so check that one out. Also, you can reach Claim the Throne, uh, Instagram.com forward slash <laughs> Claim the Throne, and also on Twitter at CTT underscore AU or at Mr. Cabba or at Ash Throne. Uh, next week we'll be back to the old school podge format um, with just me and Ash chatting about a bunch of things so if you got anything you want us to talk about drop us a line or even better record a question or a comment or a thought on anything at claimthethrone.net hover your mouse over the right side of screen and you can easily record your voice and we'll definitely play it on air no matter how stupid or bad it is if it's not good we'll definitely tease you if it's good then we'll um, yeah definitely discuss it for quite a while Of course, you can find us on iTunes by searching for Claim the Throne. We would really appreciate if you can leave any feedback or ratings or subscribe to us on there. That would be a huge help. Yeah, after next week, we'll be back with another interview. I believe it may be with Bernard Shaw of Red Descending and Wrath of Fenrir, but more so about his experience in the music video production area. Um, He's from Red Empire Media, so keep an eye out for that one. And Ash and I will be back with you next week. In the meantime, while you're at the merch store getting your Flesh God tickets, you can also get cheap tour shirts from our tour just gone. We've got just a handful left. So yeah, if if you want to grab one of those, that would be awesome. If not... <laughs> if not, you can get off there and suck me off. Um, so, yeah, thanks again for tuning in to the Claim of Throne Bodgecast. Bodgecast. I hope you really enjoyed our chat with Rodney. We certainly did. And what better way to go out today than on one of his band songs? So, he was from the Aussie metal group Alchemist, who dominated during their era and have definitely left their mark on the metal scene. So, here is a song called Austral Spectrum.
Fashion of nature 